Good morning. Luke 1, 26 to 28. The birth of Jesus foretold. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her safe month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be multiplied. Then the angel left her. Please join me as we pray with Martha as he comes. Precious Lord, we are here eager and looking to hear from you. May your spirit come upon Matt as he speaks your word. And you speak to our hearts your word that is spirit and life. Thank you for this opportunity to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Eden. Thanks very much. Hi, everyone. As Eden said, my name is Matt. Um, I'm a member here at Grace Church. I work for Barclays Bank, and I've got two children. So now that you know a bit about me, um, maybe it'll make it a bit easier to have to look at me for the next half an hour. I always get this phone call from Mike Tyndall before I preach, which is like, we're going to go through the dress code now, Matt. And what we want is the smart version of Matt. <laughs> he's, trying to, he's trying to make me feel good. Like there's a smart version inside me. I had to go to Gap at like 9 o'clock last night to get this. <laughs> so thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot. So here we are. There we go. There we go. So this December at Grace Church, we're spending a bit of time in some of the classic passages that are usually read during carol services. And our theme is hope at Christmas. So you may notice last week, um, we looked at Isaiah 9. That's the passage we had read during the, the singing time. And today we've got Luke chapter 1, where the angel Gabriel um, comes and tells Mary about God's rescue plan. And it's called the Annunciation. It's very, very famous. Um, it's all about God's plan to save the world. As I say, it's, it's very famous. And because it's so famous, it's, it's really familiar to many of us, isn't it? Although I am going to add the caveat that I'm aware that we do live in Manchester in these times 
where a young girl in my son's school was being told about the nativity story and, and when asked who Mary was, said, Mary Berry. <laughs> so those are the times we live in. But the great news is that somewhere in Manchester there's a girl that knows Mary Berry is not Jesus' mum. So there's our silver lining. Unlike that girl, I suspect these stories are very familiar to many of us here today. Um, we've heard them many times over many years. But you know, the spiritual challenge of Christmas is to hear the life-shattering and life-changing, enormous truths of the Christian gospel through these familiar stories. When I was a young boy, I uh, lived in pubs from about the age of five to the age of 18. Lived on the floor above the pub, and whenever my friends came to stay over at the weekend, they were always really shocked at the noise from downstairs. Every Friday was karaoke, not that great to be honest, and every Saturday was a live band, significantly better. And when they came to stay over at the weekend, they'd be like, wow, so noisy down there, how do you sleep through it? And I was like, noisy? Sleep through what? I sleep fine. Didn't even notice, even though sometimes the noise could not only be colossal, but awful, awful, especially on a Thursday, Friday, sorry, because it was so familiar, I didn't hear it. I could sleep right through it like a baby. And I guess the question for us is, are we sleeping through Christmas? Is that something that we can do? Aren't we sleeping through Christmas? We've just sang uh, this incredible song, Heart the Held Angels Sing. In my opinion, probably the greatest Christian song ever written in the English language. And we're all here sort of like, yeah, we're going through this. We're feeling mellow. It's good. We've just heard this incredible passage. Because if we got our heads around this truth, our heads would be exploding right now, wouldn't they? You know, guys, there's an angel in this passage. An angel. That's massively problematic for 2016 Manchester, isn't it? But for many of us, it's so familiar, it just goes by. So what we want to be thinking as we go through this is, can we hear the message of Christmas today? Can we hear what Christmas is saying to us? So what is the message of Christmas? We've got the slide there. And the messenger, this angel, Gabriel, speaks to Mary, and he, says, he speaks three times, and Mary responds three times. What does he tell her? And we know the answer. She's going to have a baby, but this is no ordinary child. Did you notice in the passage that twice God is called the Most High, and that this child will be the Son of the Most High? And we all know in royal circles that the Son inherits the name of his Father. So the message is this. The most high has become the most low. The most high has become the most low. The message is that the unapproachable became somebody that you could hug. The, the invulnerable became somebody who was radically vulnerable. The uncreated power that sustains the stars became a baby. God became incarnate and became flesh. God became a human. Most high has become the most low. But what does it all mean? I've got three suggestions of what this message means and then three observations of how Mary responds to it. I've tried to make these slides as Mike Tyndall as possible, but it's only until we get to the second set that you'll, you'll know what I mean and we've got the alliteration going on. So I'm sorry, Mike, I'm really sorry. But what does this mean for us? Well, first of all, it means that God is greater than we thought. God's greater than we thought. See, most people disagree about who God is, or even if he's there, but of those that believe that God is there, there is a general consensus that he's far too great to become one of us, to become a single, 
weak, unique human being. Far too great for that. They argue that God is it's just too great to become limited like that. And the very idea devalues who God is. But what we see in our passage is that what makes him the most high is that he's able to become the most low. To reject him by saying that he's too great to do this is actually to diminish his greatness. And in fact, the laws of nature cry foul against that claim. Let's think about it. You can play at being a dog with a puppy, but that puppy is never going to be able to talk to you. And put it another way. Light can enter and pierce the darkness, but darkness can never exist within the light. When we feel joy and peace, it's possible for us to enter into the sadness or anger of our friends. But when we feel sadness and anger, it's nigh on impossible for us to enter into the joy of somebody else. Everywhere the greater enters the lesser is proof of its greatness. The inability of the lesser to enter the greater is proof of its lesserness. And now you can begin to see the truly mental thing that actually if God is truly great, it actually makes perfect sense for the most high to become the most low. Perfect sense that God has become a human. And there's more. Because as Gabriel tells Mary about God, he tells her about the Most High, the Son of the Most High, and the Holy Spirit. He gives her the unedited version, guys. He tells her that the Christian God, in all of his glory, is known as Father, Son, and Spirit, and reveals that the God of the Bible is a triunity. See, God explodes our concepts of him and who he is, shatters our categories. And the only point that I want to make here is that while people have struggled for literally thousands of years to get their heads around this, it shows how great God is. Because you see, God being a trinity, a loving community, Father, Son, and Spirit, shows us that God doesn't need us for companionship. God doesn't need us for love. God already had all that going on within himself, within the life of this trinity. But it shows us that this God is not distant. He's not remote. God is not aloof. He's personable. He's relational at his very core. Because this God has been in loving eternity for all, sorry, in loving community for all of eternity. So he doesn't need us for these things. That's the key thing. He doesn't need us for love. He doesn't need us for companionship. No, 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 no. This God welcomes us into those things with him. We need him. And that's why the Most High became the Most Low. To welcome us into a personal relationship with himself. Father, Son, and Spirit. There's no other God like this. So, dear friends, it's not a problem for us that God is Trinity. It's proof of his greatness. He's greater than we thought. And that's the message of Christmas. Are we hearing it? Secondly, the Most High has become the most low because we can't enter into a relationship with God by our own efforts or merits. I was trying to think about how to put this. I guess recently our faith in the inherent goodness of humanity has been really tested, hasn't it? It's been really rocked by events like Brexit or the election of Donald Trump. Whichever side of the fence you, f- you sit on those issues, we've, we've seen a real ugliness to humanity, haven't we, on both sides. But the most high becoming the most low means that even though we see through those events how broken and fractured and sometimes ugly humanity can be, 
it's, it's more broken than we realized. That's just a hint. That's just a glimpse of how things are. The truth that Christmas reveals is that humanity is much, much worse than we thought. And you'll say, all right, where's that in the text? Well, it's in the gift. It's in the gift. You see, all gifts carry a message. I'm going to prove this. Let's say it's Christmas Day and I open my first present and it's from Esther. And she gets me an exercise DVD. Obviously, it's Marak Attack. Thanks, Esther. (laughs) What is Esther saying to me by giving me that gift? (laughs) All right, so I get to my next gift and it's a book. Obviously, it's from Mike Tyndall. And it's how to win friends and influence people. All right, Mike, thanks for that. What's that trying to tell me? And I open the third gift, and this one's from Seb, and it's some aftershave, some deodorant, and soap. (laughs) All right. Now, there is no way to accept certain gifts without admitting something about yourself, isn't there? So if I accept all those gifts, what I'm admitting is that I'm fat, obnoxious, and I stink. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Well, God gave us his son, and this baby was to be called Jesus which literally means God rescues. So God became a baby and emptied himself of all power and later all life, as we've sang, to rescue us. Because we as a species are so ugly and so broken, so bad, that nothing other than the death of God could save us. And even Mary had to accept this gift. She wasn't highly favored, because she was a great person. She's highly favored because God has come to her. And by accepting this gift, she's acknowledging her own brokenness and failings. It's the same for us. And like her, we'll look at this gift if our sensibilities aren't too skewed, and we'll ask ourselves, are we that bad? And the answer is, yeah. Yeah, we are. You see, the incarnation, God becoming human, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. But we don't stay there. We don't stay in that frame of mind. We don't stay there thinking man was so bad. Because remember, God gave the gift. He gave the gift. Because finally, we will see we are more loved than we ever thought possible. And there's an American author called Dorothy Sawyer who makes this point far better than I could have done. I've tried to plagiarize it. I just thought, actually, I'm going to read it. So here we go. The incarnation means that for whatever reason... God chose to allow us to be limited, to suffer, and be subject to sorrows and doubts and death. For whatever reason God did that, he has nonetheless had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. He can ask nothing from us that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty. He died in disgrace. He suffered infinite pain, all for us. And he thought it was well worth his while. So he thought that we were well worth his while, guys. So if you, if you have a God who couldn't become human or is too great for that, What you mean is that you have a God who doesn't love you like this God loves his people. And at the end of the day, all we really want is to be loved. doesn't matter how macho you are, like me. Ultimate specimen of macho. I'm going to take your silence as proof. (laughs) 
All we really want is to be loved. Because when we're loved, what that means is that we have a purpose and we matter. Love is what so many of us look for for hope. And that's why when Coldplay sing things like this, when I'm cold, when there's a light, sorry, when I'm cold, there's a light that you give me when I'm in shadow. There's a feeling that you give me, Everglow. When they sing that, it feels authentic and it feels real. It feels true because like, that's what we want. And it makes per- perfect sense for us to long for this because we were built by a relational triune God. It's hardwired into our DNA to want love, to operate within an environment of love. That's how the world should be. But the only love that is ever going to satisfy that thirst in our soul, the only love that will never be exhausted, is the love of a God who is eternal. Gabriel tells Mary that this God's kingdom will never end. This God came all the way down, became a baby, lived the life that we could never live, died the death that we should have died, that we could never escape, because he loves us so, so much. More than you could ever imagine or fathom, actually. Isn't that great news? Well, guys, that's the message of Christmas. That's the true Christian hope, that the Most High became the most low, and he did it for you. Are we listening? Or are we sleeping through it? Because if we miss this, we actually miss out on one of the greatest resources that there is to deal with life when it's hard, to deal with suffering or hopelessness. Because there's a lot going on in Christmas, isn't there? There's a lot of hopelessness going around at Christmas. Christmas is supposed to be the season of joy. It's supposed to be a time of hope. But for a lot of people, it's really difficult. It's really painful. It's a reminder of painful memories. It's, it's a reminder of dashed hopes. It's a reminder of absent loved ones. How are we supposed to deal with those, those things? I don't know, because we actually live in a really, really unhelpful time, actually. We live in an atmosphere that tells us that if you're experiencing suffering, pain, problems, emptiness, strife, and struggle, that's an abnormality. That is not what you should be experiencing. We're not given a manual of how to deal with life when it gets tough. We're just told, well, what you're feeling is wrong. Change your circumstances. We're not given a manual. But one thing is certain, at some point in our lives, those storms are going to come. How are you going to get through them? How are you going to weather those storms? We're taught that these things are the ultimate evil, but our experiences are filled with them. The only coping mechanism we've got is do whatever you can to be happy. Numb it. Replace it with something else. Distract yourself. How's that working out for you guys? How's that working out for people that you know? You know, the other thing about growing up in a pub is that you see people whose lives are just completely broken because they turn up at 11 o'clock desperate for the next drink. Yeah, it's not working out. That's my observation. My observation is that the results are dire. We're not happy. They're not happy. We're all left alone um, when we get home, aren't we? We're not free, we're miserable, we're empty, sorry. And when we try and paper over this hopelessness, when we get home, we're all left with in the same place. We, we get home, we lie in bed, we're left alone with ourselves, and the only voice we can hear is our own, and that's when we know it's not worked. Because we're not satisfied, and we don't feel the peace that we think that we should feel, and we don't have the, the joy that we're told 
we have a right to receive. It's not working. And running away doesn't deal with the pain. I know that from growing up in the pub and seeing people like that. I know it from my own grief. But answers don't help with grief either. You know, I know why my dad died. It didn't help. I know technically what happened. It didn't help. What does help with that feeling of just crushing oppression and sadness that you can't get away from? The only thing that helped me was just knowing that I wasn't alone, actually. There's no easy answer to pain. It doesn't go like that. But knowing that I wasn't alone when the ground had fallen from under my feet helped. Presence helps with pain. And in the midst of struggles, we don't need to know why. We, we just need presence. So when your life isn't going as you planned and your job is destroying you, when your family is disappointing you or your health is draining you or your grief overwhelms you, only a God with wounds, only a God who became flesh is there with you. Only an incarnate God suffers. Only an incarnate God still bears the scars today. He hasn't forgotten. So only in Christianity does God enter our suffering. And in fact, he so, so loves you that he wants to be enmeshed in your suffering. He's not watching and saying, hey, I'm here if you need a hug. He's there. He's in it. He's with you. He's walked that road himself. That's the Christian God. And the Christian message doesn't promise you that if you're... If you're going through suffering and pain, it's going to stop as soon as you start believing in Jesus. It doesn't promise you that. But it does promise you you won't ever be alone in the middle of it. Ever. And I know some of you guys are really struggling. I know some of you are. I know some of you are in some tough situations. It might not stop, but you'll never be alone. You'll never be alone. See, The most high became the most low. God becoming human, the incarnation, that's the gospel. That's the Christian hope. He's greater than you think. You're worse than you think. But you're more loved than you could ever imagine. That's what the angel came to tell Mary. And if we're going to respond to this message, we actually need to do what she did. Do what Mary did, and we'll see that she goes through three stages. And this is my Mike Tyndall moment, so I hope you're all with me on this. Sobriety, sincerity, and submission. Three S's. This is what she goes through. So let's go through the first one, sobriety. Can you have a look at verse 28 with me? It's back on that first page. The angel went to Mary and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. But Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. I don't know why she's greatly troubled. Um, I don't know how many greetings angels have got, why this particular one greatly troubled her. It's almost kind of funny, isn't it, to read it like that. The word for greatly troubled and wondered is literally, and I'm going to try and pronounce this, logis demai. And it literally means to account or to reckon or to think. So you might choose to translate verse 29 like this. Mary reckoned and weighed up the different possible reasons for what had just happened. So in other words, Mary began to think. She wondered, how do I begin to account for what I've just seen? Is this real? Is it it a dream? And just briefly, I just want to touch on this. It's important to see 
Many people think that the only way that you can go along with this kind of thing is to turn off your brain. Okay, angels, right, turn it off. There we go. Now I can enjoy myself again. And even people in the church sometimes behave as if the only way to have a spiritual experience or an experience of the divine is to turn off the rationality, turn off the analysis, and turn on the mysticism and the feelings. But that's not actually what we see with Mary. She's not primitive. She reacts just like you or I would. She doesn't turn off her brain to experience God. Rather, she, exp- she approaches the experience soberly. What's going on? She thinks it through. And now you might be thinking, okay, I can buy in- into the fact that she thinks. All right. But at the end of the day, she lived in an age and a historical climate where these kind of people could believe in this kind of thing, could believe in an immaculate conception, the incarnation, much more easily. But really? Did they? Is that so? Well, let's, let's press into that. You've got the Greco-Roman climate, okay, where the teaching that God would become flesh was absolutely antithetical and contradictory to the very core of their worldview. They believed that, um, that the material world was intrinsically dirty. Why in the world would the gods get involved with it? It wasn't just dirty, it was evil. The idea that the divine would become human was just completely stupid. They'd just think you were an idiot. So that doesn't work out. What about Eastern philosophy or cultures? Well, their understanding was that the material world was an illusion, um, you know, with negative, with negative connotations. So the idea that it, it was actually trying to deceive you. So rather the divine was trying to call us away from the delusion, away from the material to the spiritual. Um, it certainly wouldn't think that the divine would enter the material to try and fix it. So again, the incarnation is just complete gibberish to that kind of context. So let's go to Mary's context, Judaism. Okay, and actually Judaism, of all the contexts, would find this the most problematic because they've got the highest view of God. Um, God is the transcendent creator of everything. Um, his name couldn't even be written down or spoken. Yeah, they've got such a high view of God. So the idea that he would become flesh is not just stupid, it's offensive. Okay, it's offensive. So go with me here. There is, there is no place in history that you can point to to say that this was a cultural trend of thought um, where one thing leads to another and all of a sudden, boom, you've got the incarnation. Doesn't, it doesn't work like that. There's no culture like that. There is no stage of development This doesn't make sense anywhere you look. This teaching is not the product of a culture, east or west. They would have found it just as difficult. They probably found it more difficult than we would have found it. They couldn't believe it, just like we find it difficult to believe it. So that's why Mary isn't like, oh, wow, an angel. Let me turn off my brain. That's why she's afraid, because this doesn't make sense. It goes against everything that she believes, everything that she's ever known. That's why she has to think about it. So don't say that they had a more amenable culture. There was no such culture. Don't behind that and miss the life-shattering, life-changing, enormous truths of the Christian gospel. It's just too easy, and with all due respect, it's intellectually lazy to do that. Just to say, I can't believe like they could. Mary couldn't believe it either. But she looked, and she thought about it. She did that soberly. So will you look into the claims of Jesus? Today, with myself. Will you think about them? And Mary doesn't just think about them, she's also sincere. She's sincere. Um, Many of you know I've got a five year old son um, called Josh, 
And it wasn't too long ago that the conversation every dad dreads came up. Dad, where did babies come from? Oh my goodness, flipping heck, what am I going to do? It was like, you've seen The Matrix with bullet time. It's like time slowed down. And rather than being able to go into my mind palace like Sherlock, all I could, all I could sort of notice that my throat had gone dry and my hands became the opposite. And I was like, good grief, I'm not ready for this. It felt like three hours had elapsed, but it was actually three seconds. And I realized that standing there frozen wasn't really going to satisfy his questions because he, he just kept asking the question. Um, so I was like, okay, man up, it's time to do this. <clears throat> okay, well, um, son, all babies are a present from God. Started out okay, brilliant. And a present from God given to a, a mummy and a daddy. Thought, job done, brilliant. Yeah, dad, but where do they come from? Doesn't a bird bring them? Oh, man, what is this? The Spanish Inquisition. You can't throw a curveball at me like that, mate. Now, I had no idea where he'd heard about storks. Um, but the moral dilemma at this point for me was like, how do I not lie, but keep it appropriate, appropriate, and um, also comprehensible for a young mind? And I think you'll get in the picture that I was pretty flummoxed. And I said something kind of unhelpful, like, and I'm trusting you, well, there's no bird, but when a mummy and a daddy love each other, they might have a special cuddle, and that makes a baby. <laughs> can, I, can I just say at this point that I am not advocating, if you have children, that this is the way to discuss these matters with your children? <laughs> Don't do what I did. Be sensible. Don't do what I did. Go straight to the last line, which was, I'll tell you when you're older. <laughs> it was made more awkward, because children remember things, and they bring them up at inappropriate times. <laughs> like in front of your wife, who then realizes the conversations you have with your children when you're alone. So yeah, don't ever say that. Just say, I'll tell you later, and it'll be fine. Um, but Josh was actually fine with that answer. He was fine with, I'll tell you later. He just ran off and played Lego. So he was nowhere near as nervous as I was. He just, he just went with it. And when the angel tells Mary that she's going to have a baby, a lot of people assume something, diff something very similar happens and that she just goes with it. You know, a lot of people say back in those days, people would just believe in a virgin birth because they had a different worldview. But we've already seen that's not the case. It's not actually a diff so different a worldview anyway. And common sense and the text actually tell us that that didn't happen. Mary responded just like we would. You know, she knows how these things go down. She knows how babies are made. Um, and that's why she gets into it with God and says, look, I, I don't understand this. Um, verse 34, how will this be, Mary asked, since I'm a virgin? You know, first of all, she's just thinking, and then she really starts, the penny starts to drop, and so she just says to God, I don't understand how this is going to happen. How's this going to work? My suggestion to you is, um, as you think through the message of Christmas, do what Mary did. So she's got all sorts of intellectual question, questions, but if there's a God and it's possible for, for this God to, to exist, he's a personal God. So if the God of the Bible exists, the only way to deal with your doubts and your prayers is with him, to work through them with him, to pray through them. And that's what she's doing here. She's talking it through with him. She's going to him and she's willing to admit her questions. But importantly, she's sincere. There's a kind of skepticism in the world today that is afraid to hope in anything and a kind of faith that is reluctant to ask questions. It, and it seems like wisdom to us. It's mainstream. You know, you even get it in pop songs. Get ready, it's the cause, that song. And who knows I might feel better, oh, 
if I don't try and I don't hope. It just seems, it just seems wise to us, doesn't it? But Mary shows what real people who really respond to the gospel do. She's, she's not scared of letting her heart hope. She's not so scared that, of letting her heart hope that she won't talk to God. And she's not using her sort of religious faith as a drug to sort of numb her questions or doubts. No. She's working through them. She's wrestling. She's struggling with them. She's bringing them to God sincerely and honestly. And, and that's okay. You know, whether you've been a Christian for 20 years or whether you've just been in this room for 20 minutes, don't be afraid to ask your questions. Don't be afraid to go to God with your feelings. Actually, that's probably the most sensible thing you could ever do. You know, put it like this. Talk them through with a God who was so interested in you and what you think and what you feel that he came all the way down to get you and rescue you. Don't think that he's going to think you're stupid or not going to want to hear from you. He loves you. You don't have to sort out your life before you come to him. We come to him as we are. We bring nothing but questions and doubts and failures and sorrows, and that's okay. That's all right. That's all God expects us to bring. Finally, then, we see that Mary submits. Have a look at verse 38. Or maybe we'll go from 35, actually, sorry. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. And Mary responds, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Now, as we read through that, it just sort of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? But let's just pause for a moment and figure out what she's actually saying here. Because it's pretty momentous. She's living in a traditional society. She's betrothed to somebody, but not yet married. She's probably about 14 years old. If she becomes pregnant before getting married, what do you think the consequences for someone like that are going to be? What do you think is running through her mind as she's told all of this? Joseph's probably going to divorce her. She's got no idea that God's sent a messenger to Joseph in his grace. So in her mind, she's saying, you know, okay, may it be. That means, may I be unwed, an unwed single mum? May I live on the, the cusp of poverty for the rest of my life? May I be disgraced? Um, may I be ostracized from my family and friends? May I be talked about as that woman? If that's what you want, God, I accept it. Make no mistake, she'd be disgraced. There was no Manchester that she could run off to where no one would bat an eyelid and where people would welcome her and she could build a life. That's one of the reasons why this city is a great city. People are welcome here. But there's none of that for her. It's social and economic suicide. That's what she's being called to. And what does she say? May it be. She's not filled with joy. That comes later. She says, I see what I need to do. I see the evidence. I see what's going on. And I give myself to you. I realize that if I, I'm going to give up the, my right to determine my own life. I'm going to give up the right to ask for conditions. I'm going to give myself to you unconditionally. And she didn't know it. But she's actually being called into the kind of life that her baby would lead. She's sober. She's filled with doubts. But she sincerely brings them to God. And then finally she surrenders 
her life to God. And it happens in stages. It's kind of how it happens, isn't it? It's a, it's a journey of faith for her, um, like it is for so many of us. It's gradual. And like I say, the joy comes later. It's not till she meets up with her relative Elizabeth who confirms some of these things that she sort of explodes into joy. She, she's been mulling these things over with Elizabeth in community and then just, yeah, the penny drops and all of a sudden she's able to hold in her mind everything that she might lose but everything that she might gain and she decides that, yeah, she's going to treasure God. But that isn't an instantaneous thing and if you're here as a Christian and you think that you should be feeling like that all of the time, it's not normal. You've got to go through it. You've got to work through it. It takes time. That's why it's a journey. That's why we're asked to follow Jesus. It's not press the button, done, you've changed, see you later. We work it out as our life goes on. It's not a one-time deal. This is the pattern of discipleship. So, friends, there's an advanced lesson here if, if we're a Christian, and it's this. We are not called to an easy life, and I really, really want to say this tenderly, okay? Jesus doesn't promise us a comfortable existence. He doesn't promise us success or wealth or the perfect family. He doesn't promise us respect. He doesn't promise us influence or health. He doesn't promise us a pain-free life. He won't prevent us from feeling sorrows. Now, that's just me talking about what I want from life. I don't know about you, but load it in there. In fact, he, he's calling us in, into those things, not away from them. So, you know, in the midst of it, he's calling us into them and calling us to hope in him instead. In the midst of life, Know that you're rich because you've been given the greatest gift of all, the Son of God. Jesus is brutally honest. He tells us elsewhere in, in, the, in the New Testament, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you're going through, as though something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, inasmuch that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. See, the, the letters of the New Testament tell us that this is normal. This is what we should expect. So Jesus is calling us to the margins and the front line. He's calling us to the places of pain and discomfort, not, not comfort. So think about your struggles. Think about all of your doubts and your feelings and sincerely take them to him. And here's the key lesson for us. As you do that, you've got to let him be God. Treasure him. Yes, wrestle. Yes, cry out. But ultimately, if we really want hope and joy and peace, we must come to a place where we will submit to his will. And as you go through the pain, you'll find a sweetness on the other side that, that can even make you say, I'm glad that I went through it. It was awful, but I'm glad. Why does God do this? I mean, and do you think that this is an accident, how God broke into the world? Do you think that this is an accident, how he chose to come into the world? You know, let's, let's just think about it. Mary was poor, she was young, she was a woman, she was not a man, she an, an, an unwed mother, potentially. In almost every conceivable way, she is the person on the wrong side of the tracks, as that world or climate would understand her. Okay? I'm not making a comment about what I think, I'm just saying, in that context... In other words, she's the wrong age, the wrong gender, the wrong everything. She, in that culture, is the most powerless possible person God could have chosen. Do you think that was an accident? 
that God would break into the world through her? No, it's his way of showing us what matters to him. It's his way of showing us who matters to him. It's his way of showing us that actually he is for everyone. Not just the rich, not just the mighty, not just the affluent. It shows us that his agenda is so different to ours. Pete was saying on Thursday, our life group, you know, what he loves about Christmas is that it just turns everything upside down. We see that here, don't we? So whether God's called us to the business world or to a world of nappies or leading a church or to poor health or, or affluence or some sort of trouble, are you submitting to his agenda? It's his agenda. His agenda is so different to ours, it turns it upside down. But like Mary, we've got to think about it. Sincerely ask our questions in prayer, but then get to a place where we can submit. It doesn't mean that we don't pray for relief. Of course we do. But don't wish your life away. This is the key thing I want to say. Don't wish your life away. Where you are right now is where God has called you to be. This is your opportunity right now to bring glory to him in the way that you go through these things. And like I know, a lot of us, we're at this age, you know, late 20s, early 30s, life, we're just figuring out what's happening. We're just figuring out that we did not know anything for the first 29 years of our life. And it's hard because it's breaking down who we are and we don't even know what to make sense of anymore. It's so hard. Don't waste that time. Don't waste it. That's where God's called you to be. So will you serve him there, even if it means that you go through a storm? And for those of you who are looking into the Christian faith, those of you who are seeking, will you let your heart hope? And um, will you look into these things? Will you bring your problems and difficulties to God? Your questions and doubts? Because really, what have you got to lose? Either it's not true and that's fine, you can go on your way, or it is true and you get the best thing ever. So let's, let's not sleep through Christmas this year. Let's make a promise to each other that we won't do it. Let's, um, let's hear what Christmas is saying to us. Let's, let's let that hope penetrate our hearts. Let's not just let it stay here, but go all the way down inside of us and then transform our lives. Let's work it out. Let's do that together. The most high became the most low. He did it for us. That's great news. Merry Christmas. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us your son, Jesus. We thank you so much for um, his love for us. And we thank you that even now we're not alone. You've given us your Holy Spirit to help us know him and to walk with him. And we pray that this Christmas we would just remember that the Most High became the Most Low and that we would think about that that we would wrestle with it and we would pray about it um, and um, that we would submit to you, that we'd live our lives for you. And we pray for our friends that don't know you, that we might be able to share this message with them because it's the best message, it's the most precious thing and we don't want to keep it to ourselves. Amen.